Fashion. Well, we're not bad here on Fashion by Dad. In fact, we're real good. It's five o'clock in the morning here in Brisbane. That's 10pm in Latvia. Good night, all you Latvians. Serve the far north there. Midday in Sacramento, California, where it's as hot as Hades. And this hour... This hour on Fashion by Dad, we will have time for a story time story that will come from Alone on the Soaks, Alec Kruger's book about life alone in the sandy areas of the Northern Territory on the Vesti Farms. Uh, the Blazer of Glory, the star of The Blazer of Glory is Jade, not Jane. The Blazer of Glory is her stage costumes she's chatting to me for ego radio about making her own costumes but i thought i'd ask her some other questions as well while i was there uh ain't necessarily so this episode is a tale of a baby down an air conditioning duct now it doesn't scare the hair off the top of your head i don't know what will you're listening to Eco Radio with me, Jeff Ebbs, and I'm talking to Jade, not Jane. Welcome to Eco Radio, Jade. Thank you very much. Hello. Now, you've just put out a new track, Dance With Me. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, it's my latest song. It's called Dance With Me, and I wrote it at the start of this year, actually. I was on a road trip. We were supposed to, my partner and I were supposed to be going to America, but instead we went on a road trip out to Uluru. So we drove all the way from Brisbane to Uluru. So was that a COVID-inspired change of destination? <laughs> yes, it was, very much so. Couldn't, could not go to the States, so we had to change our plans. Um, but we used the time, we hired a van and we took some instruments and we just wrote music and sort of just in, enjoyed being outside and travelling. So, yeah, Dance With Me was a, a song that came from that time and I think I was really inspired by just being under the stars and I guess that's why the, the lyrics in the chorus are come and dance with me under the stars. <laughs> mm. Now, in your publicity you described it as uh, being you know, more serious. I think you may have even used the word darker than previous numbers. I just want to talk to that for a minute. Yeah, well, when we um, started producing the song, we just got this really, like, groovy bass line going and, like, oh, this feels a bit, like, menacing and it just sort of fit with the song so well because it's a song about being out, not wanting to go home and it's night time and it's dark. Um, so, yeah, it just sort of fit with the theme of the lyrics and the production sort of just slotted in so nicely. So... Yeah, it's a bit darker than normal. I think normally we're a bit more synth-focused in the music, so leading with that really dark, groovy bass, yeah, it was a bit of a shift. But mm. Well, I really enjoyed playing it on my graveyard shift uh, show, Fashion by Dad, because of that, you know, being out, not wanting to go home and it being dark outside. It's <laughs> got a very early morning vibe. That's awesome. <laughs> Now, um, you also commented recently that you have been making your own stage costumes. Yes, I have been. <laughs> and was that something new to you or have you been making clothes for a long time? 
very new, very, very new. I um, got to a point last year and I think it was probably just, I don't know, just something about the way the world is and I just was so tired of trying to find new things to buy to wear on stage and I was like oh I just never find exactly what I want I feel like it's never any it's never like it's never any good quality and my my mum used to sew when I was little and I was like oh surely it wouldn't be that hard so (laughs) I got a sewing machine and I just started I first started just repairing old clothes that sort of had you know yeah just to try and repurpose items and then I so how did you find getting to grips with a sewing machine did that require instruction or were you able just to do that (laughs) um yeah I looked a little bit at the instructions but I'm very much like a a doer first so I'll always just get in and try and do it I'm very lucky that I had um my best friend is a pretty good sewer so whenever she visits I'm like can you help me with this project that I'm doing I've not done this part right or can you like help me with how I do this (laughs) she's really good at it so I just made recently and I had the tension settings wrong so I ended up with a lot of uh lumpy sort of thread on one side of the um, <laughs> hem. Uh, it yeah. took me a while to even work out that it was the tension. So I've, I'm impressed by that. Yeah, well, it definitely didn't come without a few um, misses. I've <laughs> tried to make things and just been like, oh, goodness, this is so bad. But, yeah, it's it's been good. I've it really... sounds like it's um, been giving you a real degree of freedom, you know, because you can make what you want rather than having to put up with what you can find. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's so hard to find clothes that just fit right as well and they have to be comfortable for stage. So I was always like in the predicament of I wanted to find something really sparkly but I couldn't find anything that was like the right size in the sparkly or, you know, the right fit for stage. So I just was like, I'm just going to give it a go. I'm just going to try and make something. (laughs) Um, so that dress you're wearing in the video clip for Dance With Me is so sparkly. I mean, that's amazing. Did you make that one? Yes, I did. <laughs> wow. You, I mean, you're shining like a million stars in that. <laughs> yeah, and I was very inspired. I think it's also given me the opportunity to take what's in the lyrics and try and put it into clothing, uh-huh. which is very new for me. I've never done that before. I've never had like a vision come to me for the clothing I'm wearing in relation to the song. So I feel very inspired in that regard that, yeah, I feel a bit more f- freedom. Yeah, what you said okay. before. And so it's opened up a whole um, sort of new area of creativity as well by the sounds of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Unexpected one, but a very welcome one. Mm. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk to you about that for Eco Radio is that we've been exploring the idea of making things and sort of realise that there's a significant maker movement where people see making your own things as a way of addressing the problems with consumerism. And so it sounds like you've certainly had a positive experience from making your own clothes in this case. Oh, yeah, definitely. And... um that was another big part of why I wanted to do it as well because I just didn't want to keep buying clothes because I just felt like I was just like it feels like an endless cycle sometimes and when you spend all that time making something I feel like I keep it for longer and I'll repair it and I Mm. 
have a, I'll repurpose it if it's if it do, if they don't like the garment anymore. I've done a lot of that as well, just with like everyday clothing. And you also so, have a lot more choice over the textiles and fabrics that you choose, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I I do, and that's that's very fun as well. Just trying to find new stuff, but I've also been just going into my wardrobe and just finding stuff that. Like I had a pair of like long pants that had turned into a shirt and just like repurposing as well has been a big focus for me. And so have you found yourself when you're out and about looking at different fabrics and, you know, spotting them in markets and hanging out in spotlight, how have you been finding your fabrics? Um, uh, yeah, a few different ways. So I sometimes will try and look in op shops to see if there's any like old sheets or any old fabric sometimes you can find stuff there um also for like garments that um i can change as well op shops are a great place and yeah spotlights um good especially for some of those more like um sparkly materials (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh yeah those are my two main places that i've looked i went to a very niche or not niche, very small fabric shop when I was at Uluru and found some beautiful Indigenous fabric. Um, so that was pretty nice. I haven't made anything from it yet, but I am excited to make something from it. Excellent. I was going to comment that sometimes you find a suburb or a place where there's, you know, a different ethnic or cultural group and they, if they have a fabric shop, it can be a real um, delight to go through and find different things that you wouldn't find anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, it's very special. I just don't know what to make with it yet. <laughs> so with all of the problems that COVID are causing in uh, entertainment industry, um, how what are your sort of activities at the moment? I guess you're constrained from touring right now. Yeah, and uh, shows are hard as well. I've had a few shows cancelled on me in the last month or so. Um, so it can feel really hard to plan anything because you're not sure if it's going to be able to go ahead at the end of the day. So I've just been focusing a lot on just creation because I've got a bit more time on my hands. So just, yeah, trying to write new material and explore new sounds. Well, certainly you've released a few new tracks this year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, um, I recorded them right at the start of this year, uh, Illusion and Dance With Me with um, Luke Woolett at Hunting Ground Studios, which was heaps of fun. And, yeah, just getting them out in the world was a really fun experience. Very different experience to any of the other releases that I've ever had. I feel like I've always been able to have a show and uh, there's lots of excitement when you're playing live. But um, those two were pretty impacted by lockdown. So (laughs) Mm. it's a different experience but still, still really great. And I think the feedback's been really good online. And so what's the best way to find you online? Um, I'm on all the socials, so on Facebook and Instagram, um, Jade Not Jane, you'll find me there and on any of the streaming platforms as well, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, whatever takes your fancy. (laughs) Okay, so the key thing to remember is Jade Not Jane and that will uh, find you through most search engines. Yeah, yeah. I'm the first search on Google. <laughs> Excellent. So are the Jade Not Janes out there. <laughs> well, Jade, thanks very much for your time today and uh, good luck with creating new music and new costumes. There Thank we, you very much. There we have it, Jade Not Jane.
is 4ZZZ. I got a fever. And the only prescription is for cowbell. The only place you can get your cowbell. Here on the Zeds with me, Jeff Ebbs, listening to Fashion by Dad, and we just heard Dance With Me from Jade, not Jane, uh, following a little preview of an interview for you, dear listener of Fashion by Dad. You get to hear it first preview of an interview I did with Jane for Eco Radio. They only get edited snips. You got the whole lot. Jade talking about costumes and touring. Now, it is time for a story time story here on the dad, on the fashionable dad, that's me, your dash and dadder. 
We are reading from Alone on the Soaks, The Life and Times of Alec Kruger. The inland rivers of central Australia are mostly dry, but there is still water moving down the rivers in the sand. A soak was a place in the river where underground water was close to the surface. It might seep, become a damp area and even a pool. Limbler was like that. It was never dry in my time. A big pool of water was always there. Most times at other places you had to dig and you had to keep the seepage area free of sand. This involved having planks of wood available and cut to the right lengths. The process was a bit like digging a vertical mine shaft in reverse. You placed the planks into a square of the wetter, sandy part of the river, then you dug the sand out from the middle. As you dug, the square bits of wood would drop. When the square dropped to ground level, you placed another layer of planks down. In this way, you lowered the level down into the river so the hole filled up. Our job was to keep the soaks clear of sand and to get the water out of the hole into the troughs so the cows could drink. Otherwise, they would trample the walls of the soakage and you would spend hours digging out of the sand again to keep it working. So Alec describes a couple of different ways of getting the water from the hole into the sand, different sort of homemade pumping systems using canvas buckets and sticks. Don't forget you're out in the northwest of the Northern Territory or the Kimberleys on stations where, you know, might be three days ride from the homestead to the soak. This was usually a job for the hot months or if there had been a sustained dry period. For much of the time that I was at Lovers Creek and later at, at Napa, they had quite good rain years. After a bit of rain, the Hale River became a series of waterholes. It was not, not necessary to have the soaks working. But in dry times, they were essential. A couple of stockmen would head out to do the top part or the bottom of the hail. They would get a message back to the station if someone was needed for a particular soak. For much of the summer, stockmen would be out in solo camps, keeping the water happening for the stock. Over time, I had responsibility for the Arikea, Aloira and Bronco wells. This meant keeping the soaks flowing and the troughs full. There were about three to 400 cattle using these soaks during the dry times. I could be out on my own as long as three months at a time. It depended on when or if the rain came. To do this, we were given rations of tea and flour and a group of us might head out together. You'd go with whoever had the adjacent waterholes. We didn't get any meat or even matches. You were expected to know how to keep a fire going and how to supplement your rations. But I didn't and had a terrible time of it. It was a little after Christmas in 1935, the first time I was taken out and shown my soaks and wells. I was just 11. I was just 11 and trying hard to play the big man. The other fellows with me helped me getting a fire going and then I was left on my own. I was expected to stay camped there until good rain came. 
Today I still dread being left alone. I get terrible panic attacks where I can scarcely breathe. I blame it on the isolation of much of my work at Love's Creek. is getting pretty thin. The water's getting warm, so we might as well swim. The world's on fire. How about yours? That's the way I like it, and I'll never get bored. Yes, love! Four Triple Z, spitting rhymes at you on the reg. And on Four Z, we're spitting rhymes at you here on Fashion by Dad. Well, we're not spitting rhymes, we're spinning yarns. That's what we're doing here on Fashion by Dad. We just heard uh, from the Kill Ties Killed Toys, Killed Toys, get your vowels right, Jeffrey. Uh, Killed Toys with Come Alive. They uh, toured South East Queensland last month. Now they're kicking back in bed listening to uh, us play their tunes here on the Zeds. Uh, Killed Toys Band is the handle you can find them on on the socials. Um, here on Fashion by Dad, we are reading from Alec Kruger's Alone on the Sogs. We just heard about how he had to spend three months on his own in the desert, a couple of, you know, ten miles from the nearest guy, a bunch of young Aboriginal orphans or, you know, stolen generation kids sent out to keep the water flowing in the back blocks of the large stations in Northern Australia during the summer. Later in his book, Alone on the Soaks, we are talking about a grown-up man. I was badly hurt when working at Alcuta Station. Stock work always carries a risk. People these days don't spend any time on horses so they don't know what big living, breathing animals they are. Unpredictable even when you know them backwards and forwards. Every horse is an adventure. They have personalities, sometimes bad ones. And you can just be unlucky. A hole in the ground or an animal coming out of nowhere and you can be thrown. A snake rearing up out of the grass. Whatever it is, a horse can panic, shift its weight suddenly, start bucking or just take off. I've seen enough deaths and accidents to know to be careful. As Cammy Cleary said, you should never let a horse catch you unawares. But it happens. It was early morning. I was alone pushing a mob of cattle along to better water and grass. I'd taken a cut lunch because it would take me all day. I was out in scrubby country with the, long, with the sun not long up, heading to a waterhole where a mob was waiting. My horse was a fresh young mare that kept trying to take charge. The usual thing was to show it once and for all that you were the boss. I decided to stir her up a little, take the sting out of her. The horse was twisting and bucking along with me, holding her easily, when she veered suddenly sideways. Perhaps she lost her footing. Anyway, I was caught on the hop, and the mare careered out under a tree. I ended up being smashed straight into a branch. 
I must have hit it really hard because it ripped me open from above my temple down to below my eye. I was knocked out cold and didn't wake up. Because I was working alone, it took until the afternoon before the blokes realised I was not about. When I didn't turn up for tea, they got worried. They came for a look and found my mare wandering about. The country around Alcuta is beautiful grass and woodland, so it's hard to track through, but they were experienced bushmen and finally chased me down. They came across me just before dark. I had been out in the sun all day. It must have been a pretty grim picture. My face was a mess. Where my head lay, there was a pool of congealed blood. Lines of blood had come out of my ears and mouth, ants and flies had settled over my face. At first they thought I was dead, but one of them rolled me over a bit and found I was shallow breathing. They wiped me clean as much as they could, wrapped me in a blanket and a shirt was borrowed to stop the bleed. I'd already lost a lot of blood. They couldn't wake me. Some stayed while the others went back to the station's truck to carry me in. I was gently placed in a tray on a mattress of sorts. It was three weeks before I regained consciousness. I woke up as weak as a kitten. They were worried I might have some brain injury. I couldn't remember the accident or anything else. But gradually things started to come back and I was on my feet again. I was soon back on a horse again. I have a big scar running from my temple down my ear from that accident. If, it hadn't, if I hadn't have been found that night, I probably would have died. As it was, it was a close-run thing. Despite being weeks off work, there was no workers' compensation then, or none that I was told about. I never got any support after that accident. Alec Kruger talking about his life as a stockman. On the... Um, Vesti stations, Vesti, the British family that owned the Wave Hill station, which is famous for being the site of the strike by the stockman, who, as you can tell, <laughs> didn't get much in the way of work or workers' compensation or wages or rations. A bit of tea, a bit of flour, you can catch your own meat and keep your own fire going. No meat, no matches. He was 11 years old when he started doing that job. Read it and weep. Uh, Alone on the Soaks by Alec Kruger. Uh, one thing I want to say about more about that, but not about Alec's life, about the writing of the book. But first we'll hear from Lucy Courts with everyone. You know that I've been feeling crazy This time of day cause lately It's only when I see you I'm feeling half awake Cause you got me like an ocean There's 50 ways to go But if you can find a reason Then how am I supposed to know? Maybe, baby, then you have to know whether you're burning the midnight oil, kicking on till late, or up way too early chasing your dreams, 4ZZZ's been here with you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for 45 years. After some initial technical hitches, the station settled down to broadcasting from 6am to 1am, 7 days a week. While everyone else is catching some shut-eye, we're here keeping you night owls and early birds company with tunes you won't hear anywhere else. Although I can't say that I approve of punk music, may I say that I am quite surprised that 4ZZZ has managed to 
Help us keep the dream alive this Radiothon. Subscribe, donate and support 4ZZZ. Head to support.4ZZZ.org.au or call 3252-1555 to keep your late nights and early mornings filled with Z. And so she was quite surprised that Triple Z had survived for four years. Well, of course, we're all surprised, or pleased, should I say, that Triple Z has survived for 45 years and going strong, sounding stronger than ever. And we hope here on Fashion by Dad that you are enjoying the tunes that we have been playing for you through the graveyard shift. I'll reverse now to my normal voice. Here on Fashion by Dad, uh, well, that was Lucy Quartz with everyone, up-and-coming Brisbane artist. Since then, though, I was reading from Alec Kruger's book, Alone on the Soaks, talking about what it was like to be a stockman in the 2030s as an 11-year-old boy, uh, leading up to the walking off the job on Wave Hill Farm, a strike by First Nation stockmen that changed the nature of agriculture in Australia. Now, interesting little side story about Alone on the Soaks. It was uh, written with Alec by a friend of mine, Gerard Waterford. And Gerard came to Sydney, where I was living at the time, to do some research because he had heard that one of the stockmen riding with Alec had kept a diary and he wanted to find that diary and apparently he donated his possessions when he died to the Mitchell Library at the Sydney Uni. Now in the week that uh, Gerard and his good wife Jo came to stay with me and my good wife in Newtown in inner city Sydney, I was given the marvellous opportunity to uh, donate a website that I'd built in 1995 to the National Library of Australia. The National Library of Australia was mounting an exhibition of the early days of the web. I'd written a book called The Australian Internet Book, which in the first version had all 65 websites that were in, uh, up and running in Australia in August 95, before Microsoft related, uh, released their Windows 95, which was their first nod to the internet. Um, so all the 65 websites were in a directory and we built a really, really early database um, publishing system to put web pages on and had examples which were illustrated in the Australian Internet book of those early websites. One of the most remarkable things looking back at it is that there were no images. Images weren't a feature of the web in early part of 1995. Um, anyway, I thought, well, this is my place in history. I'm going to be recognised forever as an internet pioneer. The National Library of Australia will mount an exhibition with my early initial prototype of a database publishing system and I'll be recorded as one of the first people in the world to do that. I spent the better part of a week trying to recreate a four-year-old, five-year-old website 
and it was almost impossible. I had engineers in Microsoft on the phone, on the internet. I had a company in Singapore. I sent a disk from the computer that I'd backed up to Singapore. So I'd done all the backups and everything, but they were not retrievable. I had to rebuild a Windows NT server to try and retrieve the backup. And even when we got the files, we then had to try and recreate the software environment to read those files. And in the end, I couldn't do it. I could have done it if I had endless amounts of money and or endless amounts of time, but I couldn't do it and survive at the same time. I had young three-month-old twins, so I was somewhat distracted. In the meantime, while I was going through this sort of brush with fame, this attempt at glory, Jared was hanging out at the Mitchell Library looking for the diary of Alec Kruger's mate. Now, we just heard from Alec describing what it was like to be an 11-year-old boy spending three months alone in the desert trying to keep water up to a bunch of cows, and now he ripped himself from um, eyebrow to... Uh, ear hole on a branch and was almost almost died. It took him three weeks to wake up. So, you know, he was living under pretty rough circumstances. One of the people who was with him on that adventurous life used to keep a diary at night with a stubby old pencil and had donated it to the Mitchell Library. So, Jared wandered into the Mitchell Library, said he was researching for a book on the life of Alec Kruger. Uh, had heard that there was this um, diary that had been donated. Uh, they looked it up in the catalogue said, oh, yes, sir, well, that's part of the special collection. We'll need a special librarian to go down to you with a special collection and take out that special piece. It's never actually been accessed since it was donated. So we came home, had lunch, had a chat. I told him about my adventures with the National Library and the Singapore Data Recovery Company and how many thousands of dollars I was spending trying to get my moment of glory. He went back to the Mitchell Library, was taken downstairs by one of the special collection curators. Uh, In the basement, there was a cyclone wire gate with a sort of roller door. They rolled back the gate, sliding sliding door, you'd call it, if it was made of wood and hanging from plastic things. Anyway, rumble, rumble, cyclone wire gate comes open. There in the special collection is a swag, a canvas bed roll. And they unrolled the bed roll, and there in the middle of the bed roll is a pile of papers. And Jared said the smell of campfire came out. There were burnt leaves, there were you know, bits of dry grass, uh, it was a couple of pencils, a pile of paper written in different inks and pencils over the years. The only copy of those papers in the whole world, and he used those as part of his research for Alone on the Soak, written by Alex Kruger with the help of Jared Waterford. So, one guy on horseback living a life so rough that none of us alive today can actually imagine it. We can read about it in Alone on the Soak, but it just makes our hair stand on it. To actually imagine what it was like, you'd have to go out and do it yourself. Managed to record and keep for 70 years his recollections. Me, with the help of Microsoft in Seattle and Singapore Data Recovery Agency 
you know, the knobs knees recommended by Microsoft, better than any data recovery agency in Australia, could not recover a set of information that I'd put together five years earlier. So one guy on a horseback with a pencil can write something that lasts for 75 years. Me and the best minds in the world and a couple of grand cannot recover information that we had recorded five years earlier. At that moment, I had one of those realisations, those road to Damascus moments, where I realised that my engagement in technology, exciting, new and liberating as it was... was really ephemeral. One guy on horseback can record things on a pencil and keep it in the Mitchell Library. Man, oh man, that's exciting. Anyway, that was my little moment of realisation. Sorry to uh, bend your ear for so long on 4ZZZ FM. Poor Triple Z, indeed, fashioned by Dad, in fact. And our warp on drugs this week is Michael Pollan's Your Mind on Plants. We're reading from his uh, chapter on caffeine. He asserts that caffeine fueled the Industrial Revolution and the rise of capitalism. It was a drug of the mind. Couldn't have happened in the tavern. He's quoting a fellow called Michelet. Just trying to find out a bit more about Michelet. Writing in 1789, Jules Michelet uh, wrote, Coffee, the sober drink, the mighty nourishment of the brain, which unlike other spirits, heightens purity and lucidity. Coffee, which clears the clouds of the imagination and their gloomy weight, which illumines the reality of things suddenly with a flash of truth. Truth. To see the reality thing as this was, in a nutshell, the rationalist project. Coffee became, along with the microscope, the telescope and the pen, one of the rationalist project's indispensable tools. But unlike the others, this was, was a tool taken up in the brain and the mind. Wolfgang Schivelbusch writes in his wonderful history of stimulants and intoxicants, Tastes of Paradise, with coffee, the principle of rationality entered human physiology, transforming it to conform with its own requirements. So, Mr. Pollan goes on to talk about how much the intellectuals of England and France loved coffee, perhaps as much because of its novelty as its power. Uh, Voltaire was a fervent advocate for coffee and supposedly drank as many as 72 cups a day. Coffee and coffee houses fueled heroic labours in Enlightenment writers. Then he runs through a long list of writers. Honore de Balzac was convinced that his vast literary output, as well as the operations of his imagination, depended on heroic doses of coffee, consumed throughout the night as he chronicled the human comedy in his innumerable novels. Eventually, he developed such a tolerance for caffeine that he dispensed together with the diluting effects of water, developing his own unique method of administering the drug dry. And here we quote from Honor de Balzac. 
I have discovered a horrible, rather brutal method that I recommend only to men of excessive vigour. It is a question of using finely pulverised dense coffee, cold and anhydrous, consumed on an empty stomach. This coffee falls into your stomach, a sack whose velvet interior is lined with tapestries of suckers and papillae. The coffee finds nothing else in the sack, and so it attacks these delicate and voluptuous linings. Sparks shoot all the way up to the brain. Perhaps the only way you could improve on that is using coffee as snuff. The ice we skate is getting pretty thin. The water's getting warm, so we might as well swim. The world's on fire. How about yours? That's the way I like it, and I'll never get bored. Yes, love! Four triple Z, spitting rhymes at you on the reg. Not everyone in the 17th century England approved of coffee, or of the coffee house. Medical men debated the beverage's healthfulness in fevered tracts and women strenuously objected to the amount of time men were spending in coffee houses. In a pamphlet titled The Women's Petition Against Coffee, published in 1674, the authors suggested that the enfeebling liquor robbed men of their sexual energies, making them as unfruitful as those deserts whence the unhappy berry is said to be brought. The unsubtle title of the pamphlet, Humble Petition and Address of Several Thousands of Buxom Good Women Languishing in Extremity of Want, did not mince words. Men were spending so much time in coffee houses and drinking so much coffee that they arrived home with nothing stiff but their joints. The men replied with their own pamphlet, claiming that the harmless and healing liquor makes the erection more vigorous, the ejaculation more full, and adds a spiritual essence to the sperm. Any problems in this department, the pamphleteers wrote off, to the husband's natural infirmity, or possibly your own perpetual pumping him, not drinking coffee. Hello, puny earthlings. Come to Fortable Z, listen to the music, enjoy it, feel it, love it. All of those humanly things, right here, on 102.1. Now, a little reading from the Ministry of the F- for the Future, the Ministry for the Future, uh, about the role of economics in ending the world. I am a secret, so everyone can know me. First... You must count every part of me. Then, translate those parts into signs that do not describe me. Together we are shackled, and with the sign that does not describe me, you can open me up and read me as I am. People will give you their promises for me, and if wrongdoers try to take me away from me, you can find me and tell the world where I am hidden. I begin as a silent speaking, a key to open every door. Now that I have opened all the front doors, I am the key that locks the back doors by which wrongdoers try to escape the scene of the crime. I am the nothing that makes everything happen. You don't know me. You don't understand me. And yet, still, if you want justice, I will help you find it. I am blockchain, I am encryption, 
I am code. Now put me to use. One. Two point. Four. Triple. Dead. 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 And to make sure that the night went off with a bang, my pa would take an old chaff sack, stuff a pound of gunpowder, that's a couple of handfuls, 450 grams for your metric mob. So I'd stuff a pound of gunpowder into the corner of the sack and wrap it tightly with a hemp rope. So the first circle would tie off the hemp sack so that the gunpowder was locked in the corner and then he'd um, wrap the rope around and around until he had a ball of tightly wrapped rope with a ball of gunpowder inside it and that little bomb would become the head of the effigy of Guy Fawkes and that effigy would be mounted at the top of the pyre roped to the tree that was going to be burned out of the ground and at sunset we'd light the fire and a couple of hours later after we'd finished blowing off our thumbs and setting fire to each other's boots by dropping penny bungers in them, the flames would reach Guy Fawkes' feet and we'd stop our shenanigans to watch him burn. I put a picture of a bonfire in England in 2019 with Guy Fawkes atop a bonfire, so you know what I'm talking about. That tradition has been going on since 1605. It was still fashionable to burn Catholics at the time, especially among Rechabites. The general opinion was that if you're going to drink something flammable like alcohol, you're pretty well asking for it. So the flames would lick at the effigy's feet. Eventually he would catch fire and we'd watch and wait for the head to get so hot that it'd explode. At that point, the tree that Guy Fawkes had been tied to would blow in half or you know, get damaged somehow, bits would fall off into the fire, the fire would be spread all over the place, burning logs knocked hither and thither, and uh, we'd all drag the burning logs back into the fire and celebrate another death to the tormentor for the following reasons. city of York, a Catholic born and raised. He had all sorts of names for England's King James, a man of the Protestant faith. Guy met Robert Catesby, who hated to see a Protestant rule from the throne. They hatched a plan, he'd go out with a bang, then they'd find a king of their own. Catesby and Fawkes and their other cohorts plotted to axe those in power. Under the floors of the House of Lords They hid barrels full of gunpowder They should have known better Someone sent a letter that warned of what they had planned Fawkes was soon caught The plot came to naught And Guy was soon known across the land Fawkes paid the price for the violence and vice And King James continued his reign He pledged to remember the 5th of November And see it wouldn't happen again so this bonfire night as the fireworks take flight Think how differently things could have gone 
If Guy hadn't been found with the barrels underground, who knows what that blast might have done? So remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason and plot. We see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Yes, it's hard to imagine in these times of Halloween, religious tolerance and zero tolerance for danger, how central the ritual of blowing things up was in Australian culture. November the 6th, the day after Guy Fawkes Day, was a day of comparing injuries and tour tales of property damage. Probably have to devote an entire episode of Fashion by Dad to Fireworks Night at some stage, so I can tell you about the asbestos bombs. Oh, yes the asbestos bombs little did we know uh, and homemade cannons well we knew what we were doing in that case um, also interesting that gunpowder plot song and the nature of the propaganda Guy Fawkes in fact wasn't a ringleader of the plot he was a mercenary hired he was a powder monkey he knew how to use gunpowder he was paid by the rebels to light the um the barrels. Also interesting that while they were after the King, King James, they were blowing up Parliament. So, of course, King James was opening Parliament. That's why they were doing it. But you're blowing up the centre of democracy to get at the royalty that you despise. So, a few little twisted things there. Um, we heard a, uh, a snip from an earlier fashion by Dad with me reminiscing about my Rechabite ancestors setting fire to Catholics and the great tradition of setting fire to Guy Fawkes every November. Still happening in England. I've posted the pic from... Uh, I can't remember the name of the British town, but anyway, you can just make out Guy Fawkes burning, catching fire atop the flames. Um, I told the story about my pa packing Guy Fawkes's head with gunpowder, which most people, when I've told the story, are in complete disbelief. But unbeknownst to me, it's not something unique either to the English in attacking their Catholic king killer or to my Rechabite grandfather. Here I quote from the Ministry for the Future, the new book by Kim Stanley Robinson. He's describing a scene where the uh, head of the Ministry for the Future, the Minister for the Future, ex-Irish President Mary, uh, is standing by the uh, lake in Zurich. As she stood there above the little marina, she heard a roar saw smoke across the lake to the left. Ah, yes, it was Sexalalton, the third Monday of April. She had completely forgotten. Saxelute to put it in Schweizerdeutsch. The guilds had marched in the parade earlier, and now a tall tower erected in the Sexalalton Platz had been set fire at its bottom. 
stuck on top of the fa- tower would be a cloth figure of the Berg, the Swiss-German bogeyman, his head stuffed with fireworks that would explode when the fire reached them. The time it took for this to happen would predict whether or not they would have a sunny summer or a rainy one. The shorter it took, the nicer the weather would be. So there you have it, the Swiss burning the Berg, the Swiss-German bogeyman, in an annual ritual. They do it in April. We do it in November. Same time of the year if you flip the seasons, almost. April's October. The tower at the centre of the Sexelotenplatz was about 20 metres high, a flammable stacking of wood and paper. On top, the humanoid big-headed figure of the Berg ready to ignite. The crowd was thick to the point of impenetrability. Mary was as close as she was going to get. Then the Berg went off, a fairly modest explosion of coloured sparks bursting out of the head of Winter's monster. Some booms, then the firework pale in the late afternoon light, then a lot of white smoke. Giant cheer from the crowd. My goodness gracious, don't we love a good explosion? Now, some of you may realise that um, I put together a book recently called Your Life, Your Planet, and tip number 55 of that is Your Inner Pyromaniac. It's in the section we need to talk about. We need to talk about Your Inner Pyromaniac. Quoting myself, everyone loves a bonfire, but make sure you're not burning smelly old rubbish. Check your wood for paint, preservatives or plastic attachments. Do not burn the old sofa. Don't burn your rubbish, etc, etc. The um, point of your inner pyromaniac is that we love burning things, we love blowing things up, but we have to actually acknowledge that fire is the basis of all technology. It is the basis of climate change. It is the source of carbon dioxide. So before you throw another shrimp on the barbie, check your fuel. Charcoal is good, electricity and gas can be renewable, but coal is a disaster. Check out the new solar barbecues. So folks, if you're going to, you know, fire up the Weber, don't go and buy a bag of coal. What do you think your heat beads are made from? You can buy charcoal wherever you buy your heat beads, which is just heated up wood, burning wood in the absence of oxygen. So there's my tip to allow the inner pyromaniac out for a bit, but keep it on a leash. Don't burn coal. Don't blow up gunpowder for the hell of it. Do it for fun. We're going to go to Curbside Collection, great name for a band of thing that we all miss. Is it because of COVID or is it because council is not doing curbside collection anymore? Where are those curbside collections? Free our rubbish, I say. With their new track, Little Mountain, described as Pacific Rim D&B jungle mix. Looking forward to that blonde of blend of genres. Here we go, curbside collection. <laughs> Thank you. 
curbside connection with Little Mountain. And I'll just read you, I'll just repeat that to make sure I pronounced correctly. That was curbside collection with Little Mountain. We don't want to connect the curbside, we want to collect from the curbside. You are on Fashion by Dad. We're about to see out. Now, I did promise you a... Uh, ain't necessarily so story. We've heard from Alec Kruger about his life on the soaks. I heard a story the other night that made my hair stand on end, a little more modern, from four or five years ago. Uh, those of you who are single mothers and have been studying and holding down jobs know how hard it is to juggle those three lives. This is a story of someone in that predicament who took her two children into the library to study at night. So working full-time, um, only way to find some study time is uh, tuck the kids into a corner of the library and sit on the university computers and uh, study, do the work. Computers weren't commonplace, and with limited income, this student could not afford them. So kids are snuggled in between the compactors down there in the library. Here's a funny, weird sound, banging and clanking and a few squawks and squeaks. So sort of gets up from the desk, goes to have a look. There's the daughter, the elder child, five or six-year-old, sort of sleepy face, peering out from the blankets in a little cloud of dust. Darling, what's happened to your brother? What's going on? I don't know, Mum, he's gone. Anyway, she sort of looks around. There is an air conditioning grill in the floor which has folded down from which the dust is emerging. And to cut a long story short, because we're running out of time, unnecessary knowledge is in the studio looking enthusiastically excited at me, can hardly wait for me to get off the microphone, stop prattling on about babies falling down air conditioning ducts so they can pour their unnecessary knowledge into your brain, dear listener. For that is what happened. The younger child, the baby, had rolled over, fiddled with, pressed a button on, who knows, the air conditioning grill which had then folded down into the floor and tumbled into the air conditioning duct. What can you do? You're in a library, it's the middle of the night, probably not supposed to tuck your kids into the compactus and study, but all you can do is call security. So security came and said, well, hmm, okay, I'll have a look downstairs. Went downstairs, there was a concrete wall between the downstairs room and the air conditioning duct. So, as I said, to cut a long story short, the fire brigade came, the police came, engineers came, they had to cut a hole through a concrete wall to extract said child from the air conditioning duct. And so all the way through, of course, all of the emergency services are saying, hmm, Sorry, Mum, you uh, should probably expect the worst. This may not turn out well. We can't actually tell where said child is. We don't have any plans where the air conditioning duct goes. And, of course, air conditioning ducts are often full of sharp edges, corners and uh, scrapes. So, slightly different drama, but 
somewhat similar to Alec Kruger's drama. So with that, uh, dear listener, I'm going to sign off for this episode of Fashion by Dad and pass you over to go through the sunlit hours with unnecessary knowledge. Now, here's a major uh, language warning. It's only one bad word, but it is repeated a number of times. Uh, adult concept, sexual references. Young Layla reminding all of you asshole blokes out there to go and fuck yourself. Tries to tell me what I can and cannot do with my body